This week on the Lectures in History podcast, Texas Women's University history professor Cecily Zander discusses the federal government's efforts to explore and control the American West. She focuses on the time frame of the early 1800s through the Civil War. Hang tight, class starts right after this. Hello, I'm Pam, and joining me today is Zach as we celebrate 45 years of C-SPAN's unblinking eye on the democratic process. That's right, Pam. Since our founding in 1979, C-SPAN has been documenting history with a unique approach, unfiltered, without commentary, and entirely independent from government funding. C-SPAN is funded by fees from our cable and satellite distribution partners, and now, with fewer people subscribing to cable and satellite, we're asking you to help support our next 45 years. It's amazing to see how C-SPAN has adapted and grown. With the rise of digital platforms and social media, C-SPAN has expanded its reach so that no matter where you are, you have 24-7, 365 access to the democratic process. As we navigate this ever-changing media environment, C-SPAN's dedication to putting you in the rooms where politics is debated and policy is determined will not waver. We ask you to support C-SPAN's vital mission. As we celebrate 45 years of service, your contribution helps us to continue to adapt and grow in this digital age. Visit cspan.org slash donate to make your contribution today. So here's to 45 more years of bringing democracy directly to you wherever you get your news. Thank you for your support. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to make a difference. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Today, we're on to Army Explorers in the sort of interior west. So as I told you all last time, we've been proceeding pretty chronologically up to this point. This lecture is going to kind of spin us out onto a thematic topic. So we're going to start right around Thomas Jefferson, who we left off talking about on Monday. But we're going to jump all the way through forward to the U.S.-Mexico War and the Civil War. And so a lot of the topics we're talking about today they're also going to come up in our future lectures. So just know that if you feel slightly unmoored when it comes to um, what time we're in, I'm gonna do my best to signpost, but just flag me down if you're like, we've suddenly jumped 20 years, that's gonna to happen today uh, because it's a more of a thematic topic. But what I really want us to get out of this um, is a deeper insight into this question we've been talking about throughout the class, which is once you have an empire, how do you exert control over it? And how is the new U.S. federal government, which we started to talk about on Monday, going to um, control the interior West, which is going to be its kind of biggest problem? So we'll start here with Adam Smith, pretty famous, famous dude, economist, right? Um, around 1776, just as the Americans are starting to draft that Declaration of Independence that's going to set them to war with Great Britain, he writes this about the United States. From shopkeepers, tradesmen, and attorneys, they are becoming statesmen and legislators and are employed in contriving a new form of government for an extensive empire, which they flatter themselves will become and which indeed seems very likely to become one of the greatest and most formidable that ever was in the world. So 
Smith is looking at the US from across the ocean and saying, they've got everything they need to be a great empire if they pull this revolution thing off. And um, part of that, he says, is this new form of government, this democracy. And that takes us back to Frederick Jackson Turner, right? We talked about this our second day of class, the idea that the frontier and empire um, is tied to that democratic expansion. So this is the kind of thing that Washington and Jefferson are thinking about. They're not afraid of empire, um, and they're going to pursue it. So here we'll jump forward, as I said, to William Henry Seward. So this is kind of the period we're going to cover, the 1776 to right up to the Civil War. William Henry Seward, of course, famous statesman, uh, a man who wanted to be president, perhaps as much as only one or two other dudes in the whole country's history, maybe um, only second to Henry Clay in how bad he wanted to be uh, president. William Henry Seward said this in a speech to Congress in 1856, to obtain an empire is easy and common. So lots of empires in the world. But he said, to govern it well is difficult and rare indeed. And he's talking in a period uh, right much later than what we've been talking about, by which point the United States has acquired essentially everything, including the Gadsden Purchase, that will become part of the modern continental US. And so Seward is pointing to the same problem that Adam Smith alluded to. This is not an easy task to undertake. You have to find a way to control this territory, uh, and you have to do it in a way that's fair and equitable. We talked about that tension last time, right, that Washington and Jefferson run into. Uh, people who go to the frontier do not want a lot of intervention in their lives, especially from the government. Uh, but the government must be the one that controls the frontier. So this is the kind of territory we're talking about. And for the United States, circa 1783, when it's only that little bit in green, um, there's a lot of knowledge of this land out here that they don't have access to yet. And someone's going to have to go out and get that knowledge. Uh, William Henry Seward, of course, also famous. Um, and most people remember him, right, from your AP US history class for being the dude that bought Alaska and then got made fun of for the rest of his life. Um, Seward's folly, right? So he was deeply invested in the idea of expansion. So very famous painting here, right? Westward, the course of empire takes its way painted during the American Civil War. It stands in the House of Representatives chamber uh, in the National Capitol building. It's a massive fresco, a 20-foot long fresco uh, in the House of Representatives painted by Emanuel Lutz. Uh, Lutz wanted this painting to demonstrate the kind of principal characters involved in America's westward expansion as he understood it up to 1863. Uh, and it's in line with what Frederick Jackson Turner talks about, right? The buffalo, the Indian, the fur trader, the hunter, the cattle raiser, the pioneer farmer. These are the settlers of the frontier. Um, who's missing from this painting? What kind of character or archetype? Hmm? Uh, like a, like a excuse me like a general type a general so uh, a military officer yeah is that what yeah I was gonna say um, like any kind of like politician or like statesman like anybody who is going to make rules and like keep like social norms in check right so we're back to bureaucracy right with I don't think bureaucrats are popular subjects for paintings but um, soldiers certainly are uh, and they're missing here. Uh -huh. 
And if you look at John, uh, or, or, or you look at Gast's sort of famous painting of Manifest Destiny American Progress, right, with the woman stringing telegraph wires across the plains, also no soldiers in that painting. It's really interesting um, that soldiers are left out here when they're a critical part of this um, imperial process. But just note that Frederick Jackson Turner also doesn't list the army or soldiers. And so we kind of have to ask ourselves why that is when they were so critical. I'll also note it's a great fact to pull out. Um, this painting uh, is the first painting that ever hangs in the US Capitol to feature an African-American subject. And you can see him there. Um, down along the bottom between the horse and the cow, the young African-American boy there. So he's the first um, black individual to be portrayed in a painting in the Capitol building. So it's really interesting. It's a progressive painting in many ways, uh, but it's also missing something. So, so why isn't the army there? What is the problem for people like Lutz and Gast um, and anyone who's thinking about how the Americans are going to expand onto the frontier? Well, the best institution to do it and the most equipped um, in terms of having bureaucratic support, organization, being well-funded, and having the knowledge to undertake this process is the United States Army. Absolutely. Problem is nobody likes the Army. Um, because standing armies are not um, really in concordance with the values of the new and young United States. Uh, what the United States is facing as it right drafts the Constitution, there's a massive debate over whether or not the country should have an army at all. Uh, and many think that it's dangerous because standing armies can get angry and upset. And if you get somebody in charge of them who's not responsible, like a Julius Caesar or an Oliver Cromwell or a Napoleon, they might take over your democracy. And that's not what you want to happen. And so. The US is in this really interesting position. They have a massive frontier that they are trying to subdue. As we talked about last time, they have a huge number of threats from really, really powerful Native American confederacies uh, that are much more militarily equipped than the new United States. But they don't want to have a very powerful army. So they're going to do some very interesting things with that army to make it fit within America's democratic system and our system of government. So to justify having an army at all, soldiers needed a job, uh, especially when the nation was not at war. And the US isn't at war most of the time. So they need to give the soldier something to do so that if there is a crisis or the country does go to war, you have at least a small army ready to train and equip the volunteers that you'll draw from the militia. Uh, but you don't want them to be too powerful or too ready to um, go to war, because they might be a threat. So they settle on science. It's really interesting. Um, uh, the 19th century army, and especially the army prior to the Civil War, is an army of exploration. Uh, they fight a few wars uh, that we might talk about. But in reality, um, even when they are fighting those wars, they are talking about um, scientific expeditions and gathering knowledge uh, to a great extent. And so. The principal institution for educating soldiers along this new scientific method is West Point, which is founded by Thomas Jefferson uh, in 1802. He creates the National Military Academy at West Point on the banks of the Hudson River in New York. Uh, Jefferson, of course, the most notorious uh, of the uh, early presidents for hating the national military. He did write many letters about trying to get rid of the military altogether. Uh, and then when he finally sat down and thought about it, he said, no, we really do need them uh, in case we go to war.
but let's keep them trained and overseen by the federal government. Let's make sure that we keep them under control. Um, and so they didn't want to have to rely on foreigners as they had during the revolution. They're also drawing this lesson forward. So in the US kind of uh, revolution ag against Great Britain, a lot of the military engineering, a lot of the heaviest kind of work to actually build fortifications and protect the army had been done by foreigners. Uh, so Jefferson says, why don't we create an institution that is able to train American men to do this same job in a very scientific, standardized way. So Jefferson's Military Academy, Henry Adams, he is one of the, the many sort of American Adamses, doubled the capacity of the little American army for resistance and introduced a new and scientific character into American life. I always like to pause here. West Point is a wonderful institution uh, founded by Thomas Jefferson. He founded a much better university called the University of Virginia. So the, the West Point is the second best university founded by Jefferson, and that's fine. It's not a competition, but it is. Uh, and, and here we have um, West Point. But an interesting similarity between the two institutions. Jefferson wants them to be scientific in their character. Jefferson is not interested in imparting religious education, right? Many of our early universities were founded to train ministers. Places like Harvard and Yale were divinity schools. Um, Jefferson wants science. He wants knowledge. He wants humanistic pursuits. And so a young man who goes to West Point uh, becomes one of the best trained engineers in the country. Uh, at this period, at this point, they take a five-year course. Uh, they do science. They do languages. They do literature. Uh, they do watercolor. They do horsemanship. What haven't I mentioned? They don't learn tactics until their fifth year, right? It's four years of well-rounded scientific education, and then a fifth year where you actually learn how to be a soldier, just in case. It might come up. Um, but in reality, they are being trained as engineers. And so if you wanted to be an engineer, you wanted to go to West Point. Um, and then at West Point, if you really distinguished yourself, you would not be put in the infantry or the artillery regiments of the Army. You'd be put in the Engineering Corps, which was by far the most prestigious arm of the American Army in this period. So there you have West Point. They have a portrait of Thomas Jefferson hanging there, uh, which I think would make Thomas Jefferson smile uh, as he really distrusted um, the military. Um, yeah, was there a question? Okay, excellent. Um, please shout them out. Um, Jefferson, at the same time, he creates West Point, creates a military peace establishment. So this is their compromise. They have to put in place protections to make sure that the army does not become a threat to the federal government. And in that act that establishes West Point, Jefferson also directs a Corps of Engineers be established as part of the United States Army to train loyal expert engineers and so that they didn't have to employ engineers from those foreign lands. And this is the logo, the patch of the Army engineers still to this day. Um, so if you see a soldier, um, with this patch on his uniform, uh, he is an army engineer. And army engineers uh, have been and always will be critical to kind of America's military missions, whether in time of war or in time of peace. Army engineers, uh, I'm going to talk about exploring today, but they also build bridges, reroute rivers, um, uh, help to survey and plat canals. They basically make the infrastructure of the early republic possible because they are the best trained engineers in the country. Um, and so the Army uh, is responsible for a lot of the development that we see even on the East Coast, which is not the subject right, of our class, but also 
uh, on the frontier. And so if you ever drive across a bridge or uh, a fort or river uh, anywhere in the West, you can probably count on the fact that the army got there first and built whatever the original uh, fortification was. And they build lots of forts. So anywhere you've been in Texas with the name Ford in the title, that's these guys, right? Um, including our uh, neighboring city uh, to the west, Fort Worth, right? So um, what really kicks off the age of army exploration? You have this core of trained guys. They're really good at science. They're really good at engineering. Remember, I even talked about George Washington. As much as he was a soldier, he was also a surveyor. These two things kind of go hand in hand. Well, Thomas Jefferson, and he, as he's kind of coming up with the idea for West Point and the idea for this trained corps of engineers, um, also is talking to a little guy, no offense, named Napoleon, uh, about this Louisiana territory uh, that exists to the west of the limits of American expansion, right, to the west of the Mississippi River. Remember, we'd had that proclamation line of 1763 um, and the Americans had very quickly been like, yeah, we're going past that. By this point, they've reached the Mississippi. St. Louis is becoming a prominent river town. Uh, remember that at the end of the Revolution, the British and the Americans agreed to unimpeded commerce of the Mississippi. They would share that river. Well, France is on the other side. Uh, and France is in possession of this territory of Louisiana, which basically hugs the Mississippi River uh, from its headwaters in Minnesota, uh, to where it discharges in the Gulf of Mexico at the city of New Orleans. And France wants to get rid of it. It is bogged down uh, in a series of wars on the European continent. France doesn't have the military or bureaucratic capacity to continue to administer Louisiana. And so they say to Thomas Jefferson, you want some land? And Jefferson says, uh, absolutely, I would love some land. Um, there could be a lot of really good stuff out there uh, that this new country could use. There could be a lot of uh, really interesting knowledge to be gained from going out and exploring this place. I'll buy the Louisiana Territory from you, Napoleon, um, and I'll add 828,000 square miles of territory to the United States, doubling, in effect, in one sort of purchase uh, the entire extent of the country, um, including a little bit of part of Canada. That got settled later. Um, um, and, uh, and maybe Florida. Uh, Jefferson, right, as I've already told you all, um, is truly going to insist that the Louisiana Purchase included Florida. Spain and France are both going to be like, mm, we don't really think so. Uh, Andrew Jackson's going to go ahead and go take Florida in the 18-teens uh, in what becomes known as the First Seminole War. Uh, so it's going to hang in the balance, but Jefferson thinks he's won that as well. Florida is important uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, mainly because of its access to the Caribbean. So Napoleon sells us Louisiana territory. Uh, the revolution in Haiti is on his mind. Uh, his new world colonies are collapsing, uh, and he decides to offload this territory. And so Jefferson now has a question to answer, what did he get uh, when he bought this territory uh, of Louisiana? The United States knows New Orleans pretty well, and he knows that's an important port. Um, it's, of course, uh, the dumbest place you could ever build a city, uh, but they went ahead and did it, so we have to work with what, what we got. Um, they know New Orleans is important and vital. The entire Mississippi River has the potential to become a trade artery that is unrivaled uh, in the United States. 
And Jefferson also knows there's a tributary of the Mississippi called the Missouri River. Uh, that is, in fact, seems equally uh, important, and its prospects sort of augur very well, right, for the new United States. And so he especially wants that Missouri River uh, tributary explored, and he decides to send an expedition to do it that's headed by not professional soldiers. Lewis and Clark are the explorers we're going to talk about today who are not professionally trained West Point guys. I'm going to get to them toward the middle and end of the lecture, but they are military veterans. Uh, they have uh, militia ranks, and uh, they're going to run the Corps of Discovery like a military uh, expedition. And here's what Jefferson is going to talk to them about. Yeah, Michael. I was just going to ask on the uh, other uh, screen. Yeah. Uh, wait, okay, so Thomas Jefferson, he he said that we had Florida, but is that was did everyone know that? Did we have people coming down and going into Florida, even though it really wasn't ours at all? Yeah, we absolutely did. Um, there are planters that are moving down into there, and it's also a haven for runaway um, enslaved people. They go into Florida, they become maroons amongst the Seminoles. So we have a vested interest in it. Yeah. So, like, when it's absorbed into the U.S., how many French people are actually living there at that time? In, in Louisiana, that's a good question. I don't know the exact number. Not a ton. Remember, France really administered these as kind of trading colonies, so they would have had sort of French explorers, and they would have been allowed to kind of stay and continue to explore. And would they just be absorbed into the U.S. and become American citizens, or...? Not quite. Not in the same way that um, when we talk about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, not in the same way that, that those Hispanic people living in the Mexican session will be have American citizenship conferred on them. Mm -hmm. um, not the case um, with the Louisiana Purchase. And again, I think that's such small numbers we're dealing with. Yeah. Of course, they also don't confer citizenship on the thousands of Native people that are <laughs> you know, going to kind of run into Lewis and Clark as they move. But because of the Great Lakes and because of the French access to Canada, they mm -hmm. can't like fully shut out the French. And they want the trade anyway. Um, so. Uh, it's really important. Um, Florida is a great question, yeah. So, so they, they want to bring it in, and Jackson will go and get it, as I said, in about 1815. Um, uh, they think they can get two slave states out of Florida, so they're going to just uh, run a line down the middle. They're going to have East Florida and West Florida, which is four more senators that are pro-slavery, uh, more representatives that are pro-slavery, and more enslaved people to count toward your overall population under the Three-Fifths Compromise. So, just like they thought they could get five states out of Texas, they're doing a lot of thinking about how much they can get out of Florida. And I'll talk about how slavery plays into this exploration kind of fever uh, at the end of the lecture, because politics are really heavily involved here. And it's not immediately apparent in the Jeffersonian era, because we haven't reached the age of the Compromise of 1820 and the Compromise of 1850, uh, but slavery is a live issue. Um, and there is going to be immediately questions about where slavery can go, right? Last time we talked about the Northwest Ordinance, which predates all of this. No slavery in those sort of parts of the Great Lakes territories, right? Um, here, there's going to be kind of greater questions as slaveholders start to want to move west, especially into places like Tennessee and Georgia, which we'll talk about next time when we talk about the kind of first major waves of indigenous removal uh, in the United States, which are made possible by this purchase. So what does Jefferson want? The dude is wordy, I gotta tell you. He loves a long letter, and we talked about last time, he made a copy of every single one. Um, he thinks he probably wrote 20,000 letters in his lifetime, it's a lot. Um, I don't think I'll ever send that many emails, and it's easier for me, right? So here's what Jefferson says, and this is like an excerpt from 
a much, much longer letter that he sends to Lewis and Clark. The object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as by its course with the water of the Pacific Ocean may offer the direct and practicable water communication across the continent. All right, so why would um, access to the Pacific via the continent be so important at this time? Yeah. Because then they don't have to worry about going through any other nations like waterways or getting permissions to yeah. transport goods and stuff like that. Right. What was the only other way to go to California at this time? Yeah. All across the yep. land. To All, get, yeah. Yeah. All the way down. Yeah. The really long way around. The really long way around. Yeah. So all the way around South America. Yeah. Well, right. Panama Canal wasn't really. Right. Not, it was nowhere near that time. No, no, so. absolutely. No, that doesn't come till Theodore Roosevelt. Right? The, okay. the Panama Canal comes after this class is over. Right? We end in 1900. There's no, you know, the quickest route you have is over land. And it's way quicker to sail a boat than to walk. So Jefferson is like, fingers crossed that all these rivers link up and we can just have a waterway to the Pacific. Spoiler alert, they do not. Um, yeah, Michael. When we get a train that far, we, we get a train all the way to California, but that's Right, and then that comes, later, so yeah. the Pacific Railroad Act, which I'll talk about, 1862, mm -hmm. um, gives us the kind of first, um, they'll start surveying for those railroads in the 1850s, um, but at this point, even steamships are rare, so you're actually under your own um, power. So Lewis and Clark, as I'll say, they're, they're doing a lot of paddling. Um, they, they may have burned up to 8,000 calories a day um, by just how hard they were working, right? Um, uh, which is crazy. Uh, so they did not need to hit the gym um, uh, after a long day of exploring. So yeah, water, super important. A pathway to the Pacific and potential trading routes with uh, Eastern sort of uh, nations like uh, Russia to some extent, but also um, possibly looking uh, at China and Japan, right? Because the only way around was down underneath uh, South America. And that's a long way to go. Um, I think it's approximately a 180-day journey if you leave uh, the east coast of the United States, go all the way down to end up in California. It takes half a year, right? Um, so if you can find a quicker way, uh, you're going to take it. Um, and then Jefferson says, um, obviously, we all know that there are people living in the Louisiana Territory. You're going to probably run into them. Um, please collect all the information you can about them, about the languages they speak, about their allegiances, about their affiliations, about the way that they live, how they sustain themselves. Um, and to do as much as you can not to make them hate the United States, if at all possible. Right. So we talked, we ended last time on this idea that one of the most omnipresent threats to the new American Republic were these powerful indigenous nations. Lewis and Clark are acting in part as diplomats going out to the West, trying to meet with indigenous peoples and to try and get a map or a sense of where allegiances lie, which groups do not like each other, which groups do, um, and how spread out and diverse these indigenous uh, peoples are. Um, so they're going to try and figure this out. They have some knowledge of some of the groups. There are going to be others that they, they don't know well at all. Um, and then he says, uh, yeah. They were meant to be sort of diplomats, you know? Why didn't they come with trade goods? They did, yeah. They, they came they? with like 
medals and blankets and nice clothing and even gave out weapons and guns and ammunition. So Jefferson did give them lots of stuff. He famously had a peace medal minted out of gold that they would hand to indigenous tribal leaders to say, you know, you are now at peace with the United States. Um, whether or not the indigenous leaders bought the, that, um, we, we, we won't know, but. Yeah, because the reading that I just did yeah. uh, talked about how um, the, the natives were like disappointed with their offerings mm -hmm. and how like they brought all this stuff but yeah. didn't actually bring any like real gifts. Right. And in the case of the Mandan, so, so the reading was from Elizabeth Fenn's book about the Mandan Indians. They had been trading with the French for decades, and so they'd encountered sort of Anglo-Europeans before, or uh, you know, French Europeans, and they'd given them really nice stuff. So when Lewis and Clark show up with their little boats, and they're like, "We have one or two things to offer you, but there could be lots more people, so we can't give you everything." They're like, "Oh, um, the French gave us a lot more." So the Mandans are a particularly interesting case because they were already well incorporated in these European trading networks and had a sort of long-standing relationship with the French. Um, uh, traders, but uh, Lewis and Clark, yeah, they're, they're not as impressive with their little peace medals um, and blankets. And then they're like, can we stay with you um, for the whole winter? We have nowhere to go. Uh, and it turns out North Dakota's pretty cold, uh, so we don't want to keep going. The rivers freeze over. The Missouri will actually freeze in North Dakota. It's a massive river. So um, yeah, but it's a great question. Um, they do try uh, to be diplomats, but they, they only can carry what they carry. Um, and um, there's only so many of them, you know, it's uh, about 40, 45 folks go on this expedition. So they're a really small kind of group. Remarkably, only one casualty the entire time. Um, other objects worthy of your notice, Jefferson says, the soil, the growth and vegetable production, the animals of the country, especially those not known to us, the remains and accounts of any which may be deemed rare or extinct, the mineral productions of every kind, metals, limestone, pit coal, saltpeter, salines, mineral waters, saltpeter is really important in making gunpowder. Noting the temperature of the last and such circumstances may indicate their character. Volcanic appearances, climate, uh, as characterized by the thermometer, the proportion of rainy, cloudy, and clear days, lightning, hail, snow, ice, access and recess of frost, winds, uh, the date at which plants put forth or lose their flowers or leaves, times of appearance of birds, reptiles, or insects. He's like, tell me everything. <laughs> Write it all down. Yeah. Zero clue what could be out there. Just yeah. like, because he's just like volcanic appearances. Yeah. So it's just like, just write down literally everything. Well, and when they get, when they, it's not the Lewis and Clark expedition, but once they get to Yellowstone, they're like, oh, oh my goodness, <laughs> the earth is exploding. Yeah, they have no clue. Now, they could have asked indigenous people, but they weren't well, gonna, yeah. yeah. So they, uh, uh, when they did see these different indigenous groups, uh, then they, Offered that, um, is there? Did all these native groups were they also kind of supplement? Because I mean, you have this group of people uh, and for uh, going around and they need food, water, and they do they try and get all this source? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the Lewis and Clark expedition is not possible without the indigenous people that they encounter. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll talk in a minute about Sacagawea um, or Sacagawea. Um, who becomes an avatar in our sort of national consciousness for the Native American help that Lewis and Clark received. But she is certainly not the only indigenous person that plays like an integral part in getting them across the continent. Um, so like for real, why didn't they just sit down and ask somebody about what was over here? Um, like actually why? Have you met an American? <laughs> <laughs> 
So is it just racism? Is the answer just racism? A, a large part of it, yeah. Okay. Um, Jefferson is really interesting in notes on the state of Virginia. He writes about these massive sort of um, earth mounds that, that are discovered near St. Louis. And um, he has this kind of long, again, he, he dude's wordy, long kind of exposition about where could these have come from, where could these mounds have been produced. Certainly could not have been, these are impressive structures, they show advanced civilization. He's like, they definitely could not have been Native Americans. It was probably ancient Romans who came to the United States at some point, thousands of years ago, built them and then left. Um, it had to have been a civilization on par with ancient Rome. It couldn't have been indigenous people, um, which is bonkers. Cause like, right, this is like uh, the basic principle is like the most obvious answer is probably the answer. It was, it was obviously um, indigenous. Right, right. It's aliens, yeah. Rather than a pyramid is simply the most reasonable structure in which to stack blocks. Yeah, um, no, no, it's definitely aliens. <laughs> um, right, so, so no, the answer to the question is, um, yeah, they just didn't, for whatever reason, place any value on indigenous knowledge, right? And this is one of those tropes we talked about at the beginning of the class that's going to follow our story of kind of native people in the United States. Um, native people can never be modern. They can never be civilized. They, are, they do not possess the kind of traits that set Anglo-European sort of Americans apart, which is their knowledge and intelligence. And so they don't listen to them. Um, but they do take their food. They do, yeah. They're happy to, to have their help. Yeah, Mike, did you have a? No. Um, uh, and just interesting, the British are the same way. So when the British start exploring in the Antarctic, um, their ships will often get stuck. Um, and then all the explorers will die or the ships will sink and then they don't come back to Britain and the British will send out these um, expeditions to recover the ships and the explorers. And there's a famous case. This ship was only discovered a couple of years ago um, where the British sent out a relief expedition around the turn of the century and the local Inuit people were like, yeah, they were like over there. We saw them like a few weeks ago and the boat was like stuck in the ice and the British were like, great. And they went and looked, you know, way over there. They found the boat exactly where the Inuits had said it was going to be a hundred years prior, right? So um, it's it's the kind of assumption that indigenous knowledge does not have the same uh, value, and in fact, um, it was exactly what you needed to know. So, yeah, you could have asked, uh, but uh, they're not going to, right? Um, but there's Thomas Jefferson. This is the portrait that is commissioned by West Point uh, in honor of his founding um, the university. I think it's interesting, right? He's got a uh, sort of a, either a map or a document rolled up in his hand, um, suggestive of kind of his vision for the place. Um, he was a tall dude, not as tall as George Washington, and don't think that didn't bother him. Um, yeah, he seethed about it. Um, the explorers, all right, to explore, and I put that in quotes for you know the exact reason. The idea that this was unknown territory is quite silly, but to the Americans, it certainly was. Um, Jefferson appoints Captain Meriwether Lewis to find a route to the Pacific. Uh, Lewis, um, as sort of a friend of Jefferson's who'd worked uh, alongside Jefferson for many years, um, is also from the same part of Virginia, right, that Jefferson is from, Albemarle County, um, and its surrounding area. Uh, he says, hey, you got some time? You got a couple years? Because I'd love to see if you can find a water route to the Pacific. And uh, Lewis says, why not? Um, I'll take it on, but I'd like to have a second in command. Uh, and he asks William Clark, um, to, to fulfill that role. Clark is part of a family of noted soldiers and explorers. Um, his brother, George Rogers Clark, 
was a famous participant in that Northwest Indian War that we talked about last class. Um, and so Clark kind of has a pedigree um, uh, of this. Um, I would say Clark, uh, slightly more capable uh, of the two also. Uh, poor Meriwether Lewis just kind of fumbles and bumbles into one or two uh, disasters. The most famous of these is when he's down kind of in that part of Idaho there. He drops down there and he's out hunting uh, one day uh, with another member of the expedition who is very nearsighted, um, which is not great when he has a gun. Um, they were hunting after sort of two deer. They shot one of the deer and it fell, um, but the second deer kind of scampered away and so they both went off in different directions to try and get the deer. Um, and just as Lewis is about to shoot the deer, uh, a bullet hits him um, right below his bum. Uh, and he's like, did you just shoot me? And the guy's like, no, it definitely wasn't, wasn't me. I thought I was shooting the deer. And Lewis was like, I am not the deer. Um, I'm the commander of this expedition. So um, I think Lewis is the only member of the expedition to get shot in the butt. Uh, but this is the kind of uh, stuff that they have to deal with, right? and they don't have really much um, chance of running for um, help. They got the bullet out and it was clearly from the dude's gun. So, um, um, you know, this, and look, these things repeat in American history. So uh, not the first time a government official has accidentally shot someone on a hunting expedition. Um, uh, so uh, Clark will be the second in command and they have about 45 men along on the expedition, including Clark's enslaved uh, servant York. Um, who uh, is the only unpaid member um, of the expedition. Uh, and to the joy of, of, of kids, when you go to any Lewis and Clark uh, site, a large Newfoundland dog named Seaman um, who came with them. Seaman has a statue uh, at Fort Mandan, which is where uh, we'll talk about they spend their first winter um, and so on. Uh, I remember as a kid being sort of deeply delighted um, by the story of, of Seaman the dog. Um, Lewis and Clark is such a fascinating um, period in the nation's history because it has kind of all these phenomenal kind of characters and it's the, it is really a massive undertaking. Um, so the red line there um, is, is how they go out to the Pacific. Um, as they come back and realize there's no direct water route um, that will take them where they want to go, uh, they split up to explore more territory and then their expeditions kind of reconvene um, where they had split off uh, from one another. So they do try to cover a lot of ground. Uh, and they name um, all kinds of uh, places on the American map after members of the expedition, as we've already talked about um, a little bit, um, including uh, rivers and prominent land masses and so on. So they start to fill in the map with American ideas about uh, all of these places. So up the, up the Missouri, pretty easy job of it, and then they get into Montana, uh, things get a little tricky. So uh, the core of discovery, um, as the expedition becomes known, um, they will meet and incorporate a variety of guides and traders, including a Frenchman uh, named Toussaint Charbonneau, um, and his young, she was probably about 16, um, when they married, uh, maybe 14, uh, wife, Sacagawea, who was a Shoshone, woman who had been um, kidnapped or sold to the Hidatsa, uh, who are uh, um, part of the sort of Mandan Indian nation as a young girl and traded 
um, to them. Charbonneau was a Frenchman, a French trader, a French national, who uh, married several Indian wives, many sort of and had several at the same time, sort of over the course um, of his life. But Sacagawea will accompany the expedition when it leaves Fort Mandan, which is um, kind of up there in North Dakota, the middle of North Dakota today, um, and go with them to the Pacific Coast. The first winter in February of 1805, uh, while the expedition is wintering at the small installation they build on the Missouri River called Fort Mandan, Sacagawea gives birth to a son, uh, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, uh, who goes to the Pacific uh, with the expedition as a baby uh, who is nicknamed uh, Pomp or Pompey by uh, Lewis and Clark. Um, Sacagawea at several points uh, not only helps the expedition stay on track, uh, but she also saves um, a bunch of journals and other scientific material when one of the keel boats that the expedition is using uh, turns over in some rapids, and she actually manages to save uh, all of the materials. I, I was reading about the expedition, um, and York, the enslaved manservant who goes along, was perhaps the only member of the expedition who knew how to swim, <laughs> which you would think would have been a prerequisite for, for going on a little canoe trip, but, um, but it was not. So, so today you can still get, and every year there's a different back to these, the Sacagawea gold coins. Um, and each year the back reflects a different sort of prominent moment in the country's Native American history or a prominent Native American person. Um, and Pompey or Jean-Baptiste is uh, the second child to ever appear on American currency after Virginia Dare, who was included on a commemorative Jamestown coin. They still make those? Yeah, they still do, yeah, and a different back every year. Um, I used to get all of those when I would lose my teeth. I have like a billion, yeah. like all of them from when I lose my teeth. So there I'm glad go. they still make them. Yeah, absolutely. I get them in shape. Uh, TW, they, yeah. they come out as change? Yeah. That's very funny. That's, I only get quarters. I'm, I don't feel bad now. <laughs> you got you to gotta drop the secret of the... Uh, There's only a few machines that do it, though. I will, I will tell you afterwards <laughs> which ones. So this is a secret, yeah. It's not for the, not for the C-SPAN. Yeah, they don't need to know. That's right. Um, but yeah, they still make them. So... Um, and as I said, Sacagawea kind of stands in for, in our retelling of the Lewis and Clark legend, like sort of just by show of hands, how many of you knew about Sacagawea before this? Like how many, like how old did you think you were? Like you could hold up fingers when you like heard about her. Probably like eight or nine. I did like a million projects on her when yeah, I was yeah. in. Seven, five, eight, eight. Yeah. Yeah. So you learn about her as a young kind of, right? And then. Is, it, is she like the primary thing you remember from Lewis and Clark? She's the only, I mean, when it came to helping, yep. Lewis, she was the only one. Mm -hmm. that, that's what we learned. It was right. Well, I, I remember like learning about her like at seven or eight, but I guess from getting the coins, I thought she had a lot more of a like a, a known mm -hmm. history or that was discussed. But when we get to school, it's like she was also there moving on. Yeah. So it's kind of like. She had this huge impact, but it's not really taught in American public schools. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I remember learning about York, and I think I remember the dog, but I definitely remember, like, learning kind of more about other people, not just her. But, I mean, she's obviously, like, the biggest one. Right. She's, I mean, she's on money. Yeah, she's on money. She's got almost, I think she has more um, statues than almost any woman in American history at sort of various places across the country. Um, um, yeah. Um, 
I never heard of that dog. That was the first time I've heard. The dog? Yeah, oh. no, that was that, that was a total that was totally professional. Moderately dog. obsessed with semen um, as a as a kid. Um, yeah, he was this big Newfoundland dog. It was funny they they didn't know about him for many years, and then they were finally reading the journals, and they kept seeing repeated references to this kind of animal, and they were like, oh, they must have had a dog with them. <laughs> like, um, so it's uh, uh, it's interesting. But yeah, so she's a remarkable figure, but sort of one of many indigenous people that makes the Lewis and Clark expedition possible um, and uh, probably gets more recognition uh, than, than most other kind of indigenous participants in American history. But just keep in mind, um, we don't know how much of a choice she had in taking part in this expedition, right? She had been kidnapped at a young age. She had been married off to uh, a white man. Um, she had had children with him. Um, and he told her she was going on the expedition because he had been hired by the expedition. So um, whether or not Sacagawea felt any sort of sense of participation or pride in going along uh, with the Lewis and Clark expedition, we can never really know. Um, but her son does make a career and a life as an explorer and guide for the U.S. Army. Um, he's eventually adopted uh, by uh, William Clark and raised in St. Louis and sent to Europe for many years. He speaks like half a dozen languages. Um, he's a quite remarkable figure um, in his own right, um, his, of kind of of his famous um, mother. So, um, so yeah, but we, we can't know that right. But, but there she is as part of this core of discovery. And as I said, a huge part of it, and one reason having a baby and a woman along with you for most of your expedition is a, probably a pretty good idea, uh, is that it gives you um, a pretty reasonable way to hold up your hands and say, hey, don't shoot. Um, you know, when you run into uh, a new indigenous nation, uh, you say, we come in peace. We have a woman and a baby with us. We're not here to do you any harm. And so Sacagawea and John Baptiste also become very helpful in terms of the diplomatic mission of the Corps of Discovery um, as they go out. Um, into the West. And so um, they believed, again, uh, have you met an American, that they could simply go out to all these indigenous nations and say, we're here now. Uh, we're in charge. Uh, the, the president of the United States is now your great father in Washington. You are his children. Um, and you must all get along uh, because you are part of you know, this country now. We um, sort of are conquering this territory. Uh, and I'm sure the indigenous people thought, really? Um, I don't see how you're going to pull that off. Uh, but that's what they did. Um, and they truly believed that that was a totally reasonable thing to do. Um, but they realized that indigenous people had deep-seated um, allegiances and also rivalries with one another, uh, that there was no way that these um, different native groups were just going to get along because Louisiana territory now belonged to the United States. And they had to become much shrewder and wider negotiators uh, with these native groups to secure their safe passage across the continent, to trade for the supplies, the horses, the food, uh, the protection that they needed um, to, to cross these mountains and, and rivers of the American West. Um, so they, they have to learn on the job. Uh, but it's a very interesting kind of assumption. They go out there just thinking it's going to be no problem uh, at all. And of course, um, as is always the case in history, right, uh, much more complicated uh, than that. This is uh, 
a later painting from the 1880s, 1890s of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, uh, um, the artist uh, has lots of work hanging in the Amon Carter Museum in uh, Fort Worth, if you ever want to go see. It's a wonderful museum. If you ever want to see art that is produced by these army exploring expeditions, the Amon Carter cannot be beat um, in many ways. So what did the Lewis and Clark expedition achieve? Well, they made a lot of maps, about 140 of them. Um, to the best of their ability. So they had all these scientific instruments, you know, compasses, um, ways to draw, find longitude, latitude, and so on. They contacted over 70 Native American tribes uh, during the course of their expedition. And their reports and journals describe more than 200 new plant and animal species. Uh, they caught or trapped as many as they could and sent artifacts back to uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, who displayed them in the entryway to his home at Monticello. Um, so ha have any of you ever been to Monticello? You gotta go, um, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but you walk in through those, those doors uh, from the portico outside the building and you see a massive map of the United States that Jefferson had commissioned. And these, these are replica artifacts because uh, many of the native nations um, who had artifacts sent back had asked them to be returned, um, which is their right under federal law. Uh, but Jefferson had this displayed in, and in the 19th century, you could just decide in the morning, I want to go see Thomas Jefferson today. And you could walk up to Monticello, and you could sit in the room and wait to see the former president and look at all of these objects brought from the American West, things that you had never before seen uh, in your life as a Virginian. And so it was a remarkable way of bringing the frontier, this distant space that Americans really didn't know about, uh, back to the East and supplying a vast quantity of knowledge. Um, and that's what army explorers are going to do uh, from that point forward. Um, there's other parts uh, of, the Louis, uh, of the Louisiana territory that have to be explored, including that southern portion. Um, and so uh, Jefferson finds another army guy with great name of Zebulon Pike, a phenomenal name. Uh, to be a famous historical figure. And in 1806 says, I want you to locate the headwaters of the Arkansas River and the Rio Grande. So go out to the south, go across Kansas and Colorado um, and figure out what's going on out there. Um, the problem was there was a lot more uh, trouble with uh, diplomacy that Zebulon Pike had to potentially run into because that territory that directly impeded on the Louisiana Purchase in the southern part of the United States was Spanish territory. And the Spanish didn't really want a bunch of Americans showing up uh, in this southwestern part of the United States. And the Americans don't have any maps <laughs> to tell them quite precisely uh, where the American territory, the Louisiana Purchase, ends and Spanish territory begins. So Zebulon Pike accidentally gets himself kidnapped by the Spanish because he wanders down south of what is today southern Colorado into near Santa Fe and Albuquerque. Um, and they take him prisoner all the way down into Mexico, where they try and figure out what he's doing. They take all his documents and journals and go through them and have them translated. And they think he's a spy or maybe trying to overthrow the Mexican government and so on. Uh, and then they're finally like, oh, you're literally just a dude who's drawing plants. You can go. So they walk him back to the Rio Grande and say, San Antonio's that way, get walking. And Pike and his guys walk back to the United States um, across Texas. Um, 
they, they, they cut sort of, they end up in Nacogdoches, right? So, um, and so it's a really interesting kind of moment and an expedition you hear about a lot less in part because um, it didn't fulfill its kind of immediate purpose, which was to find the headwaters of the Arkansas and the Rio Grande um, because of that minor kidnapping incident. Um, and uh, Pike though, he's a smart guy. He says, just in case, I'm gonna take a lot of notes about what's going on here in this sort of territory known as Mexico, you know, just in case that might come in handy later, um, which of course uh, it does. Um, uh, and Pike, of course, lends his name to Pike's Peak, uh, which is the prominent, most prominent of the 14,000 foot peaks in Southern Colorado, uh, beloved by Texans uh, who flee there every summer. Um, to the great annoyance of Coloradans, and I say that as a Coloradan. So um, uh, Pike, uh, absolutely um, uh, a critical figure here, yeah. They, but they just, they just said go that direction, they give them any maps or documentation, like, okay, this is kind of our area, stay away from this area. There were roads, I mean, they basically had okay. a sense of like where the missions were, right? This had been Spanish territory for decades, or centuries at this point, um, so, yeah. No, not, not quite, okay. but nearly, yeah. So this was still when like we hadn't decided that the Rio Grande was like the that border. border, right? So where, yeah. where were they saying the border was? Um, right, so okay. yeah, basically like Dallas questionably part of the Louisiana Purchase. So, so <laughs> most of Texas not included. Um, the, wet, the Texas Panhandle, but that's about it. And then that corner of New Mexico, right? And this, that's right where Santa Fe and Albuquerque um, kind of are. So they were right skirting the edge uh, of, of what that territory uh, was, right? So um, yeah, they just got, when they went, then when they cut over to Albuquerque, that's where they got themselves into trouble. Uh, yeah. And look, it happens. Um, it, was, it was 1806. They also, for whatever reason, I don't know, Pike seemed less prepared than Lewis and Clark. They end up in the San Luis Valley of Southern Colorado, which is a massive mountain park where the great sand dunes are in the winter. And Pike will literally write things in his journal like, we didn't bring enough socks. I don't, like, I don't know why his expedition, they just seemed more ill-equipped than Lewis and Clark, but they have a really interesting story. Um, the kind of final leg uh, of exploring this Louisiana Purchase is the long expedition. Uh, which fewer people know about, and it comes a little later in 1820. Uh, Stephen H. Long travels along the Great Plains, um, and his job is to map the front range of the Rocky Mountains. They're trying to figure out now, what are the best passes to get over these mountains? Where are the places that we can cross uh, these Rocky Mountains, which are massive, right? Um, especially in that sort of portion of Colorado. Um, uh, Long's Peak, which is the most prominent, furthest north 14,000 foot mountain, uh, in the Colorado Front Range, which is there in the corner of that photograph of Mo, um, is um, named for Stephen Long. Um, so again, names on the landscape. Uh, if you're driving across the West and you think to yourself, hey, what's that named after? Probably an army dude, right? Um, and so um, one thing that Long does that's really interesting, and it's gonna have a significant impact on our understanding uh, of especially the Great Plains, which we're gonna talk about in more detail later, uh, is he calls this region that he passes through, Nebraska and Colorado and Kansas, the Great American Desert. Uh, and he's saying basically, nothing's ever gonna grow here. It's not of much value. 
uh, this middle part of the country, this massive belt of Great Plains that runs from the Canadian border um, all the way down into North Texas is virtually worthless. Um, and it's a remarkable kind of statement. So remember when Frederick Jackson Turner talked about the subsequent stages of American expansion and how it basically skipped that middle chunk, that Great Plains chunk? It's because they called it a desert. And no one bothered to follow up on that. Uh. How did he miss all the stuff that was there? Time of year he went through. So mm -hmm. uh, toward the winter, um, so it's drier. The grasses are dying. doesn't look very fertile. Um, uh, and then just whatever he saw. He didn't see a lot of water. And that is true. The Great Plains do lack water, especially when you get beyond the 100th meridian, which basically runs um, not too far west of Austin. So there's this line. It's the 100th, 100th meridian. Um, Rainfall drops off so precipitously on the western side of the 100th meridian that agriculture becomes almost impossible without irrigation. So he's partly right. He's seeing really dry pieces of the plains. Um, he doesn't know that irrigation technology is going to come along and mitigate kind of all of those problems. But the reason Turner describes that massive gap in American expansion, the reason the Great Plains, actually the last part of the frontier to be settled, is partly because Long calls it a desert. It's uh, a good question. Yeah. Um, uh, I like his little little outfit. Uh -huh. I do like an army explorer. You know, what's the best pose? Oh, I'm going to be painted today. I'm an explorer. I'm going to point at something. Um, uh, the army kind of doubles down on its exploring core in the 1830s by creating what becomes known as the Corps of Topographical Engineers, and these are guys that are basically their whole job is to go out and make maps, topography, to go out and explore, um, try and figure out what's up, what's going on um, all across the West. And William Getzman, who was a famous historian, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, taught at the University of Texas at Austin for many years, wrote that uh, as army officers, they represented the direct concern of the national government in the settling of the West. There's a typo there. Um, and that's true, right? So what they are doing is being that representative of the federal government on the frontier. They are bringing it in. They are consolidating it. And they are reporting directly back to Washington. It might take weeks for their letters to get there, uh, but they are the federal government's representative in the West. Um, and they make lots of wonderful art and drawings. These are obviously a turtle and an alligator. Um, these are produced uh, in the 1830s uh, at a place called Fort Pulaski, which is in uh, uh, the Carolinas on the Carolina Low Country, the coast of Savannah. Um, and uh, they are drawn by Robert E. Lee, um, who is in charge of building uh, Fort Pulaski uh, there uh, uh, in the Low Country. So um, Army officers, regardless of what they're doing, have this incredible impulse to be documenting, recording, uh, making notes about the places they're going. And therefore, they provide an invaluable amount of testimony for understanding um, the early American West, and especially how white Americans um, thought about this as space and time. Um, it's really funny, yeah. How different was this education, like at West Point, the education they're receiving, where it's very well-rounded? How different is that from like other sources, like in other military powers, like England, France, that kind of thing? Sure, place? yeah. So, so there would have been officers' schools in those countries, but they would have been very tactically focused. Remember, these are, those countries also compel military service from um, their citizens, and the United States doesn't do that. So um, this is a self-selecting group, um, probably wanting to learn to be engineers rather than soldiers. They have to serve five years when they get out, but a lot of them leave. 
Um, so there would have been officer training, and West Point does train officers. You are commissioned as an officer coming out of West Point. Um, but it would have been a lot less focused on tactics and, and strategy. So it's um, kind of a very uniquely American mm -hmm. kind of thing. And what was the reaction, or if you know this information, the reaction of like other countries to this new American system of military? They didn't think that they were as, as capable, right? Yeah, I mean, they were looked down on because mm -hmm. they weren't spending all this time on tactics and training. And um, Americans also, it's really funny, there's a kind of there's a, a long-standing conversation in, in the history of the American Civil War whether the French or the Prussians had more influence on the American military. They're obsessed with the French. It's it's not even close. Um, they basically pattern everything that they do down to their uniforms on French design, um, French uh, systems, French knowledge, French tactics. Thanks a lot, Thomas Jefferson. Um, right? We talked about that last time. Loves the French. Um, loves to write a long letter. Uh, hates to be shorter than George Washington. So. Um, so yeah, it's a good question, but um, they were not seen as um, the equals of the great European military powers. Um, though um, the U.S. will send its officers and soldiers to Europe when European countries are fighting wars to observe what's going on. So several Civil War officers will go observe uh, the Crimean War in the 1850s and try and make sense of what's going on there. But primarily, um, they want to sort of write and draw. Uh, and explore and map. And that's what they're really, really good at. And sometimes wars give them the cover to do that even a little bit more. So, right, we had Zebulon Pike there accidentally getting into a place he shouldn't have been in New Mexico. Um, well, it's only going to be a couple of decades, and here's where we're going to kind of jump forward in time a little bit to talk about some other army explorers, uh, that the United States is finally going to get access to that territory. And they're going to do it under the cover of a war with Mexico in the 1840s to win that territory for the United States uh, after the uh, session of Texas uh, to the U.S. So the U.S.-Mexico War offers Army officers an unprecedented opportunity to finally fill in American maps of the American West. And um, they do so sort of very eagerly. Um, and there's a couple of guys I'll highlight here. Uh, I won't talk too much about Stephen Kearney, uh, though he's a really important army officer. He captures Santa Fe en route to California during the U.S.-Mexico War um, uh, and establishes a military code of governance uh, that's really important in military history. But perhaps the more important guy to know about uh, in terms of army exploration in this period is this dude, John C. Fremont, um, who is a member of the Army Corps of Topographical Engineers. Uh, who is sent to explore California uh, and the Pacific Coast in the 1840s. Uh, Fremont makes several expeditions uh, to California, but in 1846, his expedition uh, is the one that helps conquer California for the United States, subduing the Bear Flag Revolt um, and proclaring United States sovereignty over California uh, out of the hands of Mexico. With the help of the Navy, I always want to be very clear. The Navy is involved, um, but what we really care about are these Army guys. Um, but uh, in 1846, without firing a shot, uh, the Army captures California, and Fremont is basically free to establish a headquarters and start to map and explore California. And I think we all know what that exploring is going to turn up. We'll talk about it in just a minute. Um, 
but it's going to produce great value for the US. Fremont is going to become so famous as this Pathfinder, that's his nickname, the Pathfinder, and conqueror of California, that he's going to run for president. He's going to be the first Republican candidate for president in 1856. He does not win. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and to be fair, the dude lost to James Buchanan, and that's brutal. Like, James Buchanan. Um, but he tried. He did his best. And he will become a, a, a major figure in the American Civil War, though for the wrong reasons. Uh, he's going to spend basically the entire war complaining that nobody appreciates him enough, and they should be giving him more to do. Uh, and um, eventually, Abraham Lincoln's going to be like, John, please, just, just go away. Um, but he is famous because of his exploration. Um, and he becomes famous alongside a critical figure who helps him in his endeavors um, uh, by the name of Kit Carson. But first, I want to say uh, uh, army officers often went out west um, alone or with other soldiers. Uh, but uh, at other times, uh, they decided that they wanted to take their wives with them. And if you were an officer, you had the right to do this. Uh, and so Fremont there um, takes his wife, Jessie Benton Fremont, who's the daughter uh, of a famous senator who was one of the biggest promoters of Manifest Destiny in US history. Um, George Custer, who will explore in the West and the Yellowstone and the Black Hills after the Civil War, takes his wife, Libby Custer, uh, with him uh, on um, his expeditions out into the West. And uh, like, uh, like their sort of husbands, these women write down what they see and what they perceive, um, but they do it from right, a very different perspective. Uh, they're not writing as soldiers, they're writing as wives and potentially as mothers. And they're writing about the West as a place of possibility into which American families can go that are not simply a masculine space, uh, not simply a, a space dominated by fur traders and soldiers and what have you, uh, but that they're a space for all Americans. And they write books, and these books get published, and they're incredibly uh, popular accounts of these Western travels. And so the American public, as much as they're interested in the stories of John Fremont and George Custer, they're interested in the stories of Jesse Benton and Libby Bacon as well. Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon. Uh, there's a tendency right in a lecture about uh, the US Army and the American West to, to maybe not mention women at all. And some of my graduate students would be uh, raising their hands in the back and saying, where are the women at? And that's a, it's a valid question. But just to say, they were equally important um, in producing knowledge, but in a very different way. Um, and so their sources, their documents are really critical as well. They were not absent uh, from this space, which is important to note, um, even though we think of it as a very masculine space uh, at this time. There's Kit Carson, um, who is a huge aide to John C. Fremont as he goes to California. Carson is one of the kind of great um, American figures, uh, though um, his biography is as complicated and difficult to wrestle with uh, as, as any figure of the 19th century. Uh, he was at times a great friend to indigenous peoples, at other times involved in relocating, removing, and, and engaging and being complicit in the massacre of native peoples. At times he worked for the US Army, at times he was an Indian agent, an independent guide, what have you. But he is one of these frontier figures that does whatever he can to earn a living, to make a life. Uh, but the point of Carson, just as the point was with someone like Sacagawea, uh, the army can't do this alone. And it needs people who have been out there, 
who have done the work, who've gone to the West, um, and, and can help the army get where they need to go. Like literally be like, don't go 10 miles that way. Uh, it's a swamp kind of a thing, which if you don't have a map or a sense of where things are, you're not going to know. So you need that knowledge uh, that sits in place. And Carson is one of these figures. So uh, at times an army officer, but really a trader and a, and a trailblazer in the American West, a figure like Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett, who we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Sorry, you can't avoid him in this class. What else does the army do? So we've talked about their reports. Um, we've talked about they send samples back. They also create sort of pictorial representations of these places. And after the Civil War, most army topographical expeditions will be accompanied by a photographer. Now, this is a pain in the butt because photography in the 19th century involves massive glass plates. And let me tell you, taking glass plates over a mountain in a bumpy wagon with, I mean, springs, but they don't really do much to cushion the ride is a dangerous proposition. Your, your plates might not get back. But what will always get back is art. And so one thing that uh, West Pointers do is take classes in watercolor uh, and drawing uh, because um, they're being asked to represent the West to an American public in the East uh, that has never seen these places. And again, here's what Army explorers are doing. Here's how the frontier uh, is being rendered for the average American who might never go West. It's closing the distance in time and space between the far West and the settled East. And so this is an example uh, of an army report that comes out during the US-Mexico War. Uh, a young topographical engineer, James Abert, uh, gets sick near modern day Bents Fort, Colorado. Uh, Carney's like, we cannot wait for you to get better. We, we're needed in California. But once you do feel better, why don't you take some exploring instruments and go down into northern New Mexico and the Texas Panhandle and make the first American map of what is today Texas and New Mexico? And Abert is like, great. Um, Abert is also a Nepo baby. His dad was in charge of the Corps of Topographical Engineers. And that's fine. Um, he, he's a wonderful artist. Um, and these are, these are official kind of military documents, right, that he's drawing. But he's putting sort of, sort of such time and care into them that they are sort of on their own individual works of art. And these army reports will get published with full lithographs in books that the American public can buy. They're literally going and buying official government reports kind of full of these documents because they want to see and read and know about um, all these places in the American West. So um, you can find Abert's lithographs um, still today. You can get copies of them. Um, they're remarkable. I want to give you, it's not, I, I couldn't get a high resolution, but. Um, just want to give you a couple guesses as to who you think uh, painted this picture. I don't know. I don't know what clues I could give you. He's a, a soldier. Uh, he's on the good side in the Civil War. Uh, he's uh, from Ohio. General. He's a general. Uh, there you go. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant. That's right. Um, Grant was a noted uh, watercolorist. Uh, and again, this is his West Point training, right? I mean, you all know the story, I'm sure, of when Grant shows up at West Point. Um, and they have his name down wrong on the paperwork. Ulysses sends Grant's name is Hiram. His name is Hiram Ulysses Grant. Uh, and he gets to West Point, and they're like, oh, Ulysses S. Grant, because his mother's maiden name was Simpson. And he was like five feet tall. He weighed 100 pounds. He's this scrawny little thing. He was like, yep, that's right. That's my name. 
no further questions. And thank goodness he did, because otherwise his initials would have been Hug. And I don't think a guy with the initials Hug really could have won the Civil War. But U.S. Grant, unconditional surrender Grant, that's a guy who can take you to victory. Um, but he's noted at West Point as a watercolorist, which surprises people, and also as a horseman. He held jumping records, uh, horsemanship records at West Point that stood for decades um, after he left the military academy. He topped out at five foot eight, about 180, so he had a bit of a growth spurt, but um, he was an average size 19th century American. But he, like all army explorers, he sent, uh, he, he is in Mexico uh, with um, Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor, but then after the U.S.-Mexico War, he goes to the Pacific Northwest, to Oregon um, and Washington, uh, and makes notes and observations like all Army officers do. And the, the primary source that y'all are going to be reading for uh, this class uh, is an Army officer's journal, right? Um, uh, Lawrence Kipp's journal of the Pacific Northwest in the 1850s. Um, and it's about warfare on the one hand, but it's also right about exploration. Uh, but the Army wasn't a lucrative living. But it did give you one advantage uh, if you were smart enough to take hold of it. And there are soldiers who are able to do this, who go out west as army officers, and they're employed by the army. Uh, but on the day-to-day, -day, maybe they're not so busy. And they supplement their income in other ways. So you have two buckaroos. They're going to end up on opposite sides uh, of the Civil War. One of them, William Tecumseh Sherman, a good guy. Uh, the other, Richard Stoddard Ewell, he's on the Confederate side, has a terrible day at Gettysburg. Look, it's not important. Um, but they supplemented their incomes by investing in Western enterprises. And they're really smart to do so. Uh, because they have the first crack at, at, at the whole thing, right? There's not a flood of other Americans who have come in uh, to compete with them. And John C. Fremont also uh, profits from this. John C. Fremont establishes a home in California, and gold just happens to be found there, uh, and he gets rich off of that. So Sherman um, inadvertently starts the uh, California gold rush when he reports in official military documents that gold had been discovered uh, at Sutter's Mill, California. Uh, but he also earned money by applying those engineering skills that he learned at West Point and helping to survey homes and towns and cities. Uh, the modern day city of Sacramento, California, capital of California, completely laid out by William Tecumseh Sherman. Who knew? Uh, Richard S. Ewell, similarly in New Mexico, frequently wrote home to his family that he was going to invest in local mining operations uh, because it figured it would be a way to make money because um, army officers didn't get paid much, uh, about $70 a week. Uh, it's good pay for the 19th century, uh, but it's not a massive salary. So. Uh, one advantage you had as a soldier uh, was this kind of thing. So what do army officers ultimately give us uh, when it comes to the American West and their exploration? Well, they take these borderlands, these frontiers, and they start to put borders on them, right? And so well, one of the things we're really talking about in this class, a class on the American frontier, is how do you wrestle a vast space that is basically ungoverned um, into a space with lines on the map? And in 1854, for the first time, the United States Army produces a map of the American West. Uh, it's collated, put together by a guy named Governor Warren, um, who will have a really good day at Gettysburg um, and uh, help to prevent the collapse of the Round Tops uh, uh, during that battle. But in the 1850s, is a highly respected topographical engineer. will actually command um, all engineers in the US Civil War at various points. Um, but uh, he draws this map, 
uh, he takes the expeditions of Lewis and Clark and Zebulon Pike and Stephen Long and John Fremont, and he starts putting them together to make a map of the American West. And then he also went out and talked to fur traders and mountain men and said, draw what you know about these places so that I can put it all together. And here's the map that he makes. But it's a map that for the first time tries to sketch in very clear lines. Where is the territory of the United States? So on and so forth. And those lines will provide the basis for the US to construct, with the help of the army, the kind of one enterprise that will bind the nation together, that will really reduce time and space, that will connect the Pacific and the Atlantic, and that is the railroad. And I talked a little bit um, about how politics enters into this, and that's how I'll finish up today. Um, Jefferson Davis is Secretary of War in the 1850s, right? He'll go on to be president of the Confederacy, one of the largest slaveholders in the United States. As Secretary of War, he commissions five separate surveys to go out and find a line for a railroad to the Pacific coast. Um, one goes along the northern tier of the country, ending in the Puget Sound. A central line goes to San Francisco from St. Louis, uh, one north of Oklahoma to Los Angeles, and the southernmost survey went across Texas here uh, to San Diego and uh, followed an old stagecoach trail. And a fifth survey went up and down the coast of California. Uh, Jefferson Davis is going to send these expeditions out. He's going to pay them very well, um, and he's going to ask them to collect this knowledge um, about which route will be the best. This is the 1850s. Slavery is a live issue. It should come as no surprise to us that Jefferson Davis thinks that the best route for the Pacific Road is the one that goes through Texas, uh, because that's the one that has the most direct benefit to slaveholders, right? Um, it's, oh, go back. It's that route in green right there. So when Davis makes his report to Congress, he's like, they're all great, but I would suggest we build this railroad because um, it's the most expedient if we ever need to get troops to California because we're being invaded. And Congress is like, hmm, um, seems unlikely. Uh, and because the country cannot agree on which railroad is of the greatest national benefit, because slavery is such a divisive issue in the 1850s, the railroad doesn't get built until after the Civil War, which finally decides the issue of slavery in the United States. Um, Jefferson Davis should have known better um, because there was no water on the Llano Estacado of West Texas. And when he sent out an army officer named John Pope to look for water, he didn't find any, but he spent um, three years drilling holes into the ground and trying to find it. Um, talk about fruitless. Uh, but this the point here, right? Not all army expeditions are equally successful. Not all army explorers' names go down in the history books as great triumphs. Um, John Pope is not a triumph for a number of reasons, but uh, this is one of them. So here's politics at play. Uh, we want a southern railroad because it will make slaveholders richer. Um, so the point is, uh, at the end of the day, um, what starts as a knowledge-collecting enterprise on the part of the US Army to help us understand the frontier better becomes, by the midpoint of the 19th century, uh, an exercise sort of fraught with political concerns, um, and one that will, in many ways, uh, help to trigger the American Civil War. The question of what's going on on the frontier is going to be critically important. The fact that the army spends most of its time on the frontier is also going to matter significantly in helping to cause the Civil War, because Jefferson Davis has a lot of the army in Texas and New Mexico. He's developing the West for slavery, and he's using the army to do it. 
Um, and so they become a political concern uh, as well. And so that's what I have for y'all uh, today. Thanks, as always. Um, any questions, comments, concerns, please come see me. But, but thanks, everybody, for a great class. And we'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to this week's Lectures in History podcast. To find even more history content, visit c-span.org slash ahtv.